Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicles Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Moira O'Neill and joining me in the studio today are my colleagues Leonora Walters and Kate Bealey. We're also delighted to welcome special guest Adrian Lowcock, Head of Investing at AXA Wells, and he's going to be helping us comment on stories in this week's magazine. Now, in today's show, we're going to be talking about investing in gold. Also, having a summer sort out of old policies and also why some younger investors aren't really making more of their tax efficient wrappers. We'll also look in depth at two popular funds, one that invests in China and one that gives exposure to bonds. Now, last week, we saw the gold price fall to a five year low and investors usually have exposure to gold as a safe haven. But they might now be feeling a bit worried. Um, Now, we usually advise investors to hold gold via an exchange traded commodity that's backed by the physical metal. And that's because these can be traded very easily on the stock exchange. And it's much easier than holding gold coins or bars in a safe at home or in the bank. But we've seen a lot of investors exiting these gold exchange traded commodities over the last few weeks. And some firms are actually reporting that investors are diversifying into silver instead. Now, Adrian, why, why has the gold price been falling? Could you explain that? And, and what do you think investors should be doing about their gold exposure? Well, usually you hold gold as a, as a defensive asset. And um, in recent weeks, we had sort of the China sell-off in, in, in equities and, and the Greece crisis sort of coming to a head. And you'd have expected the gold price to rise, but it it didn't um, because people were probably a bit relaxed about both of those instances. But what happened was there was a big sort of transaction in the US that uh, created a big sell-off and passed around uh, to, to move very quickly to China. So we just had some transactional stuff going through, large volumes of sales, which caused a big sell-off and has re- sort of brought gold to people's attentions um, and the outlook generally for gold at the moment is isn't particularly rosy because we've got uh, expected rising interest rates in the US probably September possibly December if not uh, and and a strong US dollar both of which aren't particularly positive for gold it benefits on the on the latter a weak dollar and, uh, and and low interest rates because you don't get a yield on gold so the outlook for gold um, given that the uh, Greek crisis has passed uh, and China is sort of very much in isolation at the moment, uh, is is there's nothing to sort of make people go into defensive assets so much. Um, I mean, obviously, you're raising the possibility there that it could, the price could fall further. Is that, is that what people are thinking? Or? In, in the short to medium term, I think it, it could well do. It's uh, because we've got this sort of raising rate uh, environment in the UK and particularly in the US, that could drive uh, the price of gold down further because gold does not provide a yield. It doesn't generate an income. It doesn't produce anything. So when you have uh, raising rising interest rates elsewhere, you can basically have to look at gold and say, well, what do I get paid for to hold gold uh, compared to other assets that are going to be yielding more? So that, that sort of means that gold could be under pressure. It's very difficult to sort of value gold, though. I mean, is it worth eleven hundred dollars or is it worth a hundred dollars it's it really comes down to opinion and and market forces so um very hard to put a finger actually what the price of gold will build but in the short term it looks like it i mean really we're, we're talking about here looking really really close to it why you're holding gold in the first place in your portfolio and it, it shouldn't be a large 
um, portion of your portfolio should it we're talking you know single digit figures and you know just like a little safe haven there just in case everything goes really really pear shaped absolutely yeah. gold is a good diversifier it doesn't necessarily behave like other assets um, it has uh, a sort of value that people attribute to it so people value gold particularly in times of crisis people go to gold as a, as a safe haven asset so typically you'd probably hold five perhaps tops maybe 10% in, of your portfolio in gold, but probably no more than that. And you hold it for, for, that, for those events you probably don't want to see happen. I mean, do you think uh, diversifying into silver is a, is a valid option? I mean, silver's used uh, in you know in industry, whereas gold isn't really. Gold is jewellery and you know decorative. Um, you know, is silver something worth looking at? So, silver is, um, has had a correlation with gold over the years, um, but it, uh, as you said, does is used in industry, so it's more sensitive to economic growth than, than gold is. So if we saw a, a weakening in the global economy, that would have uh, put pressure on uh, silver, particularly if we saw weakness in manufacturing. Um, it You have to look at sort of how silver is priced against gold. Is there a, a, a gap? So, um, so, you know, is gold gone up and silver's gone down and uh, compared to his, history and that that at the moment isn't sort of significant um but it's you know it is a diversifier i probably would wouldn't switch from gold to silver as a diversification mm-hmm. because it is more closely linked to the economy and, and and doesn't give you that protection that gold does okay well there's some interesting thoughts there and if you did want to look at silver you can again do it through an exchange traded commodity like we've been looking like we advise investors do gold you know you do something that's easily tradable and that you don't have to use a safe for necessarily okay in this week's portfolio clinic we've got an investor called ian who's in his early 30s and he's made a fantastic start with a portfolio that's nearly worth one hundred and fifty thousand pounds but only half of this is held in individual savings accounts. So only half of it is being held tax efficiently and the rest is in a taxable account. Adrian, obviously we, we think he should be getting more of this into tax efficient investments, but you know what, what are the advantages there? Well, the, the big advantage of ISIS, for example, is, is that you can effectively grow your portfolio and not worry about having to pay tax on it. So you don't have to put any declarations on the on a tax return. You don't have to fill out a tax return for your ISA investments. But it can also grow and you pay no capital gains tax and you don't have to pay any additional income tax on it in, in future. So the first benefit and the early one is the capital gains tax. He, he's not having to do a tax return and pay if he's made a, a good return on some investments. The income one will probably come later in retirement when you take an income from that ISA portfolio and that doesn't have to have any other tax paid on it. It effectively is tax-free to you. Um, that th- Those are the powerful benefits of ISAs. The other one to consider is actually the pensions, doing a SIP and perhaps uh, uh, um, uh, putting some of that money out of the investments they're currently in and, and putting them into a SIP because you can get, as a basic rate taxpayer, 20% uplift. As a higher rate taxpayer, you can claim the additional 20% back through the uh, inland revenue and get up to 40% tax relief on your contributions for those. So that a SIP could be very attractive, but be mindful that you are tying the money up for a very long period of time. So that's, that's up to him whether he needs access to the money and what he's really going to be using it for. And can he afford to yes. not see it until he's 60? Absolutely, yeah. yes. yes. Um, now, the other thing that the investor's doing is, is making regular contributions into um, exchange-traded funds, which are low-cost passive investments, and they're traded on the stock exchange. 
But maybe, you know, small regular investments aren't the way to be going there with ETFs. I mean, every time you buy one, you incur trading costs. I mean, what do you think of that strategy, Adrian? I, I like the idea of doing sort of regular saving. I think it's a great discipline. So I think it's one to be encouraged. I think we do have to be careful about transaction costs. Um, ETFs, as you said, are very low cost, very competitive. Um, they are trackers, so that's one of the reasons why they are low cost. But if you're then sort of paying one, two pounds a month uh, for, a, uh, for a small monthly contribution, you know, that could be 1% or 2% of, of your overall contribution. And that's significant. So it is very much very important to consider what how you're buying an investment. If you're doing it as a lump sum, that may be a different matter. It may be a more suitable investment. But if you're doing it as a sort of regular saving, then the charges, the, the dealing charges you're paying are quite high. And it may be better to actually consider a unit trust or something in this space. The Some passive unit trusts are very cheap. They're all sort of in the region of, well, they're coming down. They're actually coming down a lot at the moment. Um, and maybe, you know, sort of below 10, uh, point, 10, 1%, uh, 10 so basis points. So it could be as, as cheap as an exchange-traded fund and without the trading costs you know involved yeah very much so yeah you do have to do your homework on this and look mm. around because they, the prices are changing all the time and there's been a lot of competition in the passive market mm. uh, because etfs have come in uh, and, uh, and 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 it's just making sure you can find one that suits your needs as well i suppose there you you know if you're holding a unit trust you're usually holding it on an investment platform and the platform will have the fee for you know for holding the the funds there as well so it, it's very much you know examining exactly what you're paying it, it is and and it, it's how you invest if you're sort of investing 100 pounds a month say into a uh, etf then you're paying maybe two pounds for the for the dealing charge whereas the platform fee will be a percentage of your assets so it's uh it, you you know it isn't it will work at some points, but not necessarily forever. So you do need to sort of review that situation. It's about how best to invest for your situation. Yeah, great. Now, I mean, obviously, this this young investor, he's keeping um, close track of his um, portfolio. And many of our older investors will be too. They'll be maybe checking it on a weekly or even a daily basis. But many uh, investors also have plenty of old pensions or savings or investment plans that are lying about and they haven't looked out for years and and maybe they've even completely forgotten that they had them if it, they took it out 20 or 30 years ago. Kate Bealey has been looking at how to have a, a summer sort out. Kate, what sort of policies are we talking about here? Um, in the main, it seems to be old workplace pensions. So particularly if people have had um, many jobs across their across their uh, career so far, they might have saved up into a load of different workplace pension schemes and maybe even, as you say, forgotten that they exist or um, might have forgotten where they are. Um, and there's there's a big divide between you know people kind of keeping track of an active portfolio and actually people who who will also have this yeah range of kind of old workplace schemes somewhere. Um, and even if they do know where they are, maybe they're not keeping track of what's in them. And I think what we see is that there are a lot of kind of old. Um, share classes and very underperforming funds in some of the very old workplace schemes which people just kind of aren't keeping an eye on and, and aren't aware of maybe there could be some high charges in there as yeah. well couldn't there so they could you know their old schemes that they're just letting um, accumulate over the years could actually be forking out lots in compounded yeah. higher charges and um and i mean we we wrote a kind of couple of weeks ago about um some of the worst performing tracker funds 
Um, and some of those, or in the the majority of those were very old share classes with very high charges, not necessarily bad funds, but just expensive old share classes. And that can really have an impact on returns. There's a particular issue, isn't there? We need to shout out to um, Standard Life potential old policyholders because some of them still haven't claimed windfalls that they're due. Yeah, that's right. What um, is this relating to, Kate? Well, this is from when um, when Standard Life demutualised in 2006 and they gave all investors in, in the with profits policies shares and cash. Um, as part of that, but there's still around 65,000 people who haven't claimed um, the shares and the cash that they're owed. What kind of amounts are we are we looking at here? Well, I mean, one person's apparently due around 139,000. Wow. But, yeah, um, but they think that the, the outstanding kind of pots per person are, are a bit over 1,000, um, between 1,000 and 1,500, I think. So, you know, not not an inconsiderable amount, really. So where can you go to find, I mean, if you, if you think, oh, I'm sure I had something years ago, but I, but I can't find the paperwork or anything. Yeah. Is there, is there, are there any, anywhere that can help you? I mean, Adrian, do you have any thoughts on how to the find first, out? Yeah. The first thing to do is actually just contact the company directly. Mm-hmm. Uh, should, they should hopefully have a record of yeah. your account uh, and they'll be able to point you through to the administrators to, to sort out the, uh, if you are, are due a uh, windfall, to be able to sort that out for you. So I'd get in contact with the company. If you can't remember which company it was, um, Kate, I think there are some firms that can help you, yeah. organisations, aren't there? Well, with um, with workplace pension schemes, there's the pensions tracing service and that's free to use and, and it keeps track of all, all workplace pensions. So you can just contact them and try and find out uh, where where it's you know where your pension scheme is because um, the company might have been taken over or something mightn't mm. it and um, be in new hands yeah and um, and then after that you would need to con- contact that company to find out how much um, you know your pot is worth um, and then the the things to do after that is potentially think about moving them into the same um, investment not everyone will want to do that but it is possible um, to sort of consolidate what you yeah. have and, and so you can keep better track of it in future. Are there any issues with can, um, transferring um, old policies that we should be aware of, Adrian? There are a couple of things you need to be sort of aware of. Is is are there a, a, what, what is the transfer value? It might not be as generous as the total value of the pension, but also, particularly with pensions, there are older pensions and older policies that have some really attractive benefits attached to them. Um, there's, they could be uh, sort of widow's benefits or, or enhanced income income streams and that sort of thing. Um, So it's really, really important when you do find out the pension, what is the transfer value? What is the value of the pension? What is the transfer value of the pension? And are there any benefits you would lose if you transferred it? And we should also say that you should be careful, I think, when transferring this money yourself, because sometimes when you take the money out, you obviously lose lose the benefit of the wrapper. So you need to um, make sure to not do it yourself sometimes. So you contact the firm that you're going to transfer into first. Yes, talk to the two yes, kind of firms. To make sure that they deal with the paperwork. Yeah. yeah. Great. This week, Leonora Walters has been looking in depth at two funds that are actually in, investing in very different areas. So let's start with um, the China Fund. Now that's Fidelity China Special Situations. It's an investment trust it was actually launched a great fanfare by Anthony Bolton, who was at the time, you know, the, the UK's greatest investor. Um, but Anthony has since, since retired and it's now being managed by Dale Nichols. 
And obviously, China has uh, suffered some some big stock market falls in recent months, and, and investors might be feeling nervous. Leonora, when you caught up with Mr. Nichols, he was actually feeling quite optimistic, wasn't he? What did he say to you? Yeah, well, I don't wouldn't say that he's necessarily optimistic, but um, I suppose he has to be um, reasonably confident. Yeah, every investor, and he said he was using the market dips as an opportunity to buy on um, things that were previously quite expensive. Um, he said that you know valuations are more attractive both on the main Chinese market and the Hong Kong market, and you know he's taken the opportunity to add or, or put things in that perhaps he thought were too expensive before, and also to buy things that were illiquid, things that you know weren't widely traded and now perhaps being sold. So he took the opportunity to add there. Um, he said that you know obviously things might have not reached the bottom. But um, he's confident that if he selects good companies, um, that um, the earnings will come through. And when the earnings will come come through over the long term, the stock prices um, should follow. Um, so that's his line there. Um, he some of the areas he he um, said were. Um, Interesting were sort of A share. That's Chinese mainland uh, shares. You like like the larger companies there because um, the um, the retail investors in China tend to go for the smaller ones. So um, there's more mispricing among large caps. And he he quite liked areas such as utility type uh, companies, consumer appliances, and in Hong Kong he um, he prefers smaller companies. These have uh, declined as well. Okay, I mean, Adrian, what what should investors be be doing about ch- their exposure to China? A lot of people will have have quite a lot of exposure to China in their portfolios, even if they've just invested in a broad emerging markets fund, won't they? So, I mean, what what can you do? Should, yeah. should you stay put or? So, China is. I mean, it's a significant market now. It's mm-hmm. the second largest to the US. So, uh, in terms of economic market and productivity, so as a stock market, it is very attractive. The, this has largely been concentrated in the A shares, and that's the domestic market that uh, the Chinese locals buy and sell. So, for the by, by and large, it hasn't actually hit the UK investor too much. Having said that, the the um, interact in interactions and the the policies that the Chinese government have put in place have had a bit of a knock effect knock on effect uh, because. Uh, when, when you're trying to sell anything, if you're restricted from what you can sell in the A-share market, the domestic market, they're moving over and selling what they can sell in the Hong Kong market and the H-shares. So it does have a knock-on effect. But it is difficult to sort of see where this will end up because there's obviously a lot of government intervention basically sort of perhaps trying to calm things down. Um, and, and, and who will win that battle is very difficult to see in, in terms of where a value I mean, I mean that in itself is spooking a lot of investors that the Chinese government is trying to you know manipulate the market yeah. really, isn't it? So and it, and it shows you exactly where China is in terms of uh, it, as a market it is compared to the West. Uh, sort of direct intervention like that, not something you particularly see in the West or used to. Um, and there's a lot of reform that needs to go through in China to make that A share market much more attractive to Western investors and much more appealing. And longer term, if all those things do come through and happen, then there is potential a lot of potential for China. It is a you know huge market, huge potential for a lot of growth. The economy is still growing very fast and hugely fast compared to Western standards at the moment. Um, and, you know, there is still a value opportunity in different parts of the market, it's, but particularly it's in the, the H share at the moment. So 
as an investor, if you have invested in China, you sort of need to remind yourself why, and, and it should be for the sort of these reasons. You're, you're investing for the long term, so short-term volatility is something that you come to expect with investing in China. Um, better to buy low and sell high. So it's always yes. important to remember, you know, in, don't sell after the after after the falls because that's that's when you tend to lose more money actually. Um, and just you know, reassess: Do you have the right risk appetite for this? Are you a are you willing to take the amount of risk? You, 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 are you comfortable with it? And you know, it's really good sort of time to assess that is actually in these sort of sell-offs because it sort of reminds you of your attitude to risk. And even if you're investing in China directly or indirectly through emerging markets funds, you know, it's it's it still should only really be a small part of the portfolio. Emerging market funds probably ten ten percent or maybe fifteen percent if you're very very adventurous, uh, and China should only be a very small part of that. Okay, well, I'm sure a lot of investors will be holding more than that in emerging markets funds. So maybe now is time to have a really good look at your portfolio. And it's summer and, you know, maybe, you know, just take some time out and reassess what you're trying to do. Um, Now, Leonora, you also this week looked at the departure of Mike Riddle, who's fund manager of the M&G Global Government Bond Fund. Now, this we had as a a member of the Investors Chronicles Top 100 Funds. Um, And he's obviously, if he's leaving, we need to examine that. So what's happened and what are your thoughts on it? I I did get some, you know, analyst opinions on it. And I think basically the view is M&G, I mean, it's got a really big bond team and, you know, arguably the best in the city. There's a lot of people in it. And, um, you know, while he was a senior member, um, you know, kind of senior members like Jim Leavis um, and Richard Woolworth, it's not like they've left. Um, So I think the feeling is that um, it shouldn't be majorly detrimental to this fund or to, you know, M&G's bond team overall. Um, The fund's been taken over by um, a team member called Claudia Kalich, who um, is also manager of the MG Emerging Markets Bond Fund. Um, and um, I think MG did say, though, that, you know, it's very much a kind of team approach they take to running their funds, so she'll certainly be well resourced. I think the issue people did have was not so much the departure or the new manager, but the the asset class um, that this fund invests in government bonds, um, people said at this point in the cycle, you know, however good a manager, you know, you might not be able to make particularly good positive returns with a government bond fund, and if you, you know, if you need fixed income exposure in your portfolio, your best option is probably strategic bond funds. And strategic bond funds. Our funds, we don't focus on any one asset in fixed income. Their managers can sort of allocate to various as, um, fixed income asset classes and shift it around constantly according to, you know, where I think the opportunities are or what risks um, need to be avoided. So, you know, in an uncertain environment, um, you know, where we don't know what's happening with rates or, you know, other, other things, um, they are arguably quite a good option. Okay, I mean, Adrian, do you think investors should be getting out of um, government bonds? I mean, what what would you advise on the exposure there? Do you agree with Leonora's, you know, the strategic bond fund as the catch-all solution for bond exposure? It's good. Yeah, I think with um, government bonds, I mean, the number of times I've heard people telling you to sell it, and it's then gone on and done well. So I think you have to be careful about that. But having said that, it's you know we're looking at interest rate rises in the US this year, the UK early next year probably. Um, and given that, you would expect 
that have a knock-on effect to, 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 to treasuries and gilts. Um, so government bonds are perhaps not the most attractive. Also, we've sort of had this period where we've been sort of flirting with deflation in the UK, deflation in Europe, um, and, and, and it keeps changing. So it's been a, quite a volatile period, um, and a lot of these factors having a big impact on bonds. So I, I, I would sort of suggest, yeah, some sort of strategic asset, perhaps a global fixed income. Um, so BlackRock do a very good uh, uh, global, BlackRock Global Fixed, um, sorry, BlackRock Fixed income global opportunities fund and it, it's basically very dynamic and very um tactical so it can move around and take advantage of the changes in the market and that way you can still have some exposure to bonds which is quite important but be able to profit from uh, rising interest rates and changes in outlook and sentiment so, sounds like a good option i think we should just point out that you are there you're relying on the professional fund manager to make the right call aren't you always always with the strategic bond fund they, you know you have to the professional has to get it right for you and yeah. that's what what you're paying them to do as well so yes absolutely yeah i mean it, it's that expertise that should add value but uh, they can get it wrong as well cool yeah. Well, finally, I I mustn't finish without mentioning um, this week's cover story in the magazine, which is on how to invest in technology, and it's written by Kate. Um, Kate, you've been exploring the funds that can capture exposure to the exciting tech companies that that could be tomorrow's giants, haven't you? Can you just give us a flavour of the piece? Yeah, yeah, the idea is kind of looking for... um, as you say, tomorrow's technology giants. So moving away from from some of the better known tech companies and looking at where the kind of exciting new opportunities might come from. Um, And I've been talking about funds as a really good way of getting access to tech, partly because a lot of these kind of new companies, things in big, you know, big data and things like electric cars, um, a lot of them are US-based. So funds are a great way for UK investors to get access. Um, And also talked about a few funds, things like Scottish Mortgage, for example, which invest in unlisted companies. So some of these really big, um, really big private companies uh, that obviously a UK investor couldn't normally get access to, but that you can access through some uh, some investment trusts. So it's just kind of a, a broad a broad range of, of angles and, and entry points to to good tech stories. Fab. Well, I mean, Adrian, what, what's your what's your favoured way to get access to the technology? theme you know it's I mean, lots of investors want want that and they can see that's where the potential is for future growth yeah i mean you have you have sort of your pure tech plays um so they tend to be more us focused uh, and and and, and dominant that and something like the axa framington global technology fund is is one example of that but you can also sort of get it in a a less mainstream kind of way and act something like access perhaps the uk's uh, small but burgeoning technology industry and and uh, the marlborough uk microcap growth fund managed by Giles. Hargreaves uh, has about 23% in UK technologies and these are very niche players and and can be quite uh, transformational they can be quite uh, uh, um, uh, new technologies and and, um, potential market leaders of the future. Okay, well, that sounds like an interesting one to look at because that will be diversified across various sectors as other other growth sectors as well, not just technology. Yeah, so, so you don't have the risk of just being in one sector, and that's very good. And the manager is is very good at uh, stock selection, but also managing risk within the portfolio. He holds around two hundred companies in that fund, um, so it's very well diversified as well. Okay, well, that's one to put on your watch list. Um, I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. So thank you to my colleagues, Leonora Walters and Kate Bealey, and also to Adrian Lowcock of AXA Wealth. You can read more about technology funds, investing for gold, and how to sort out old policies in this week's Investors Chronicle. Thank you for listening.